Hello, friends. Welcome to In With The Old. We are a podcast focused on dispelling myths, building appreciation for God's Word, and rediscovering the Old Testament for the life of faith. I'm your host, Dr. Howe, along with my co-host, Dr. Brian Koning. Uh, Brian, how are you doing today? Tim, you know I'm doing good because we are talking about the Old Testament. We're talking about (laughs) the world of the Old Testament and history, and that's something I find fun. But I do have a a question. I want to kick it over to you this morning. So, Tim, I'm going to play devil's advocate, which is always good news for you, because that means you get to be heaven's advocate in this little scenario. (laughs) All right. today's episode, we're talking about history. We're talking about the world of the Old Testament. And and I want to Mm -hmm. pretend to be maybe a fair number of us out there going, history is boring. It's rarely a favorite subject. Why do I need to know about these People have been dead for a long time. How does that actually help me better appreciate God's word? What would you say to that sort of argument? Yeah, yeah, this is this is fun, isn't it? Because I think we understand in our own moments, in our own context, how important events in history is. You know, for instance, if uh, we were to talk about the year 2001, but we didn't have any reference to 9-11 and the events that took place that day, you know, if someone else many years later said, well, I understand the year 2001, but they didn't know about 9-11, we would say, well, you, you've missed something very important. Especially in an American context, yeah. Yes, exactly. So if you want to know about American 2001, you have to know what happened. Well, the same thing's true, and, and we know that intuitively, but then a lot of times when we look into the past or when we look through through a lens such as a text into the past, sometimes when we read names and places and figures, if we don't immediately understand them, uh, we have this kind of tendency to say, well, it's probably not that important. No, it is that important. It just takes a little bit of work to, to understand the events that then can help illuminate the text that we're reading. Yeah, and I think maybe a helpful example for our readers would be seeing how Understanding the context of an event really deepens it. And I, I like your example of 9-11. It's interesting, college students today, especially incoming freshmen, sophomore, juniors, all of them were born post-9-11. And so mm-hmm. it's basically the only world that they understand through that context. But mm-hmm. for those of us that have gone through it, we kind of know how perception-changing that can definitely be. Uh, I was also mm-hmm. thinking of, as we're trying to understand the importance of history— Uh, One of the most famous speeches in English, anyway, right? It Mm -hmm. would be Churchill's speech to the House of Commons on June 4th, 1940. This is the famous, we will fight them on the beaches and on the streets Mm -hmm. speech. Mm -hmm. President Kennedy said of that speech, uh, Churchill mobilized the English language and sent it into battle. It's it's a famous speech, but I think the true weight and importance of that speech, because if you go and listen to it, you can read it and go, well, I mean, yeah, it's, it's nice, it's eloquent. But the significance of that speech is only really felt once we understand the context, understand that this Mm -hmm. came right after the British had been driven off the continent. Things look dark. Everyone is tuning into the speech to expect Churchill to say, we give up. We are going to surrender. Mm -hmm. We're going to capitulate. And in light of that, you begin seeing the speech as a declaration against the Nazis, that they are never going to give up. It is a plea to the new world in America and Canada, come over and join into the war. Mm-hmm. Set in its context, we see the, the importance of this event. So, yeah, and, and to me, Brian, I think, I think one of the things that we need to see is 
events happen all the time around us, but there are certain events where there's a very clear before, there's a very clear after, and if you don't have some idea of, of what went on that changed it from before to after, you're just not going to understand the flow of it. And I love your example of Churchill's speech because it's like there was a before, very dark, he gave the speech, and it really you know encouraged uh, the, the British to fight and to, to go back to their roots. So that's what to me is so important as we look at the bible there are major events that there's a before there's an after there there's the kinds of things that if you just aren't aware of it you're inevitably going to misunderstand it which is of course what we want to try to avoid to do as we read the bible so part of uh, the difficulty we might face as we get into understanding the bible is that many of these events are not going to be recorded in the text but require some Mm -hmm. understanding of the historical context that we're dealing mm-hmm. with, right? So these things come not only in the form of historical events that might be important and happening. For example, if you're reading through the book of Genesis, you end with the people of Israel in the land of Egypt. You flip over the page to Exodus, and all of a sudden the people are in captivity. <laughs> yes. It's a bit of a jarring change, right? When you put it in context of the history of Egypt, you realize about four centuries have taken place. And importantly, Mm -hmm. Egypt has undergone a lot of internal and external conflict that have drastically changed their understanding of outsiders and non-Egyptians, and that helps explain the context. The difficulty, right, for our readers is none of that is captured in the biblical text. The biblical text is focused very much in on its story. So Mm -hmm. some of what we're going to need to do, and this is outside maybe the bounds of this podcast right here, but some of what we need to do as readers is understand that history. And the other thing we need to do as readers is begin understanding how the Old Testament is given to us in terms of form and how it engages with that living history of when it was given. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more, Brian. And, And as we open up the Bible, and especially as we look at the books of the Old Testament, um, they don't come to us with those nice study helps that maybe we see in our, our study Bible. You know, they the, the oracles of the prophets, for instance, you, you turn and they don't tell you when they were written. They don't tell you what's going on around them. There's an assumption that when that prophecy or oracle was given that, of course, the people at the time knew, but that's where just a little bit of spade work can make a world of difference in understanding what's being said, both to the original audience, but then, of course, also what it means to us. And so we've, we've just got to be willing to do that spade work uh, so that we can come to the best understanding of the text possible. Yeah, we've said it before, and we'll say it again. A, a good study Bible, and there are many good study Bibles with nearly every major translation, a good study Bible mm-hmm. is going to be worth mm-hmm. its, its weight, usually. It's mm-hmm. quite valuable, because it can bring in a lot of those events going, hey, this is why this would matter. The Genesis to Exodus thing. Most study Bibles will have an introduction to the book, and they will tell you these things. So uh, for Mm -hmm. our listeners, if you don't have a study Bible, I think, Tim, you and I are in agreement. We both highly encourage it as part of your regular reading. It's an easy way to add that in. We want to talk about the form a little bit of the Old Testament, though, and how it comes to us, because it does come to us in a historical time with a historical context. And so to understand it, we have to understand that context a little bit, and we want to put up as we get into the subject, two kind of guardrails that we want us to be aware of. When we talk Mm -hmm. about the Old Testament, the Old Testament is not unique. And we could use the technical term sui generis, one of a kind. What we mean by that, or maybe I'll start with what we don't mean by that. We don't mean that 
oh, it's not the word of God or it's completely identical to everything else. We'll get to that. That's the second guard post we need to put up. But what we mean when we say the Old Testament is not unique, we mean it is very similar to other ancient Near Eastern works. Understanding how literature worked in the ancient world, in the cultures around Israel, can help you understand why certain biblical books are written the way they are, why they cover the content that they do, because they're trying to fit the forms of the world in which it was given. And this is actually, I think, a key point in understanding how God works. God condescended to human understanding, human language, and human culture, and gave us a text that is understandable and was understandable to an ancient world, right? He didn't make the people of Israel learn a new language, learn a new genre of writing, learn unique terms to be able to understand them. But he said, here is the forms, the phrases, the words you understand your world in terms of. I can Mm -hmm. use those to speak my truth. I'm not going to have to come into your culture and fix every issue before I can reveal myself. I can reveal myself through these things. So when we talk about the Old Testament, we want to say, look, there are other works around the Old Testament that will help us appreciate its form. The Old Testament is the Word of God and unique in that way, but it's not completely one of a kind and so far out there that there's nothing that we can compare it to. Yeah, absolutely. And and before someone tunes us out and says, okay, this is about to get nerdy or, you know, we're going to talk about <laughs> other literature of the time. It's too I, late. I we're to, already nerdy. Yeah, yeah, that's true. We're That's not going to change. But like, think, think of, think of it like this. When we say that there's other literature that you can read that, you know, other flood stories, other creation stories, other stories that give us sort of the mental furniture or concepts that were common of that time, uh, we're, what we're saying is, is that it really couldn't have been any other way. You know, God chose a particular moment in history uh, in each one of these writings. What makes the Old Testament a little bit tricky is that there's a thousand years worth of history there, so even that changes over time. But Brian, I'm, I'm interested in what you'll think of this, because as I, I consider that reality, part of the reason I think God does that is for His people— so that he communicates them to them with concepts and images that they would have already understood. But also, it allows the Israelites to be salt and light in a different kind of way, because as they explain their stories of creation, or their stories of flood, or their stories of a God who makes a covenant, a relationship with someone, and, and enters into a relationship with his people, by doing it that way, the other nations around them could have understood and and they would have been able to identify, oh, these stories are similar, but their God is fundamentally different than our gods and their relationship with their God is fundamentally different. So by doing it that way, God communicates with his people in a way they would have understood, but also positions his people to be able to share his nature, share his character with others in a way that was transmissible. It was, it, it was, not not necessarily a common language in terms of the tongues in which they spoke, but there was a common set of ideas that would have allowed them to transfer, you know, this idea of a God who exclusively and intimately loves his people, uh, which again sets Israel apart in a way as a nation that, that mediates the presence of God to the world, a kingdom of priests. Um, and the more we can understand that, the more we're going to be able to, you know, mine for the goal that the Old Testament itself contains. Yeah, I think that's really beautifully put, Tim, and that's what we're trying to say when we say the Old Testament has these similarities, because that does seem to be how God prefers to communicate, 
It makes it transmissible. And we see that continuing on. I'm thinking of the New Testament when Paul goes and ministers. He spends time understanding the context in which he's going to talk and uses that. Men of Athens, I perceive that you are very religious, right? He, He goes into their context and their worldview and then uses that saying, you have a shrine here to the unknown God. Well, let me tell you about him, right? Paul isn't coming mm-hmm. in saying, here's a new language or new vocabulary, but I'm going to take what you have. We're going to play with it. We're going to mess around with it to reveal truth outside of what your culture already has. Yeah. And Brian, so we're going to talk about a few of these in this episode to give a taste. And then next episode, we're going to, we're going to kind of do a deeper dive into it. But I think what helps us is when we come to the text and understand that in fundamental ways, the Old Testament uh, uses those ideas, but also critiques them. So for instance, in other, and, and this is kind of a technical term in Old Testament you know, circles, it's very common, but if you're not familiar with it, we're going to use the phrase ancient Near East. Um, and that's, that's something that hopefully will uh, become familiar to, to you. The ancient Near East is just kind of a, a scholarly way of saying the the world in which the ancient Israelites lived and thought. And uh, so the ancient Near East would be other cultures, for instance, uh, the Egyptian cultures, Assyrian cultures, later on uh, Mesopotamian or Babylonian cultures. When we talk about the ancient Near East, it's sort of an all-inclusive term. Uh, but when we think of concepts of the ancient Near East, most other cultures of that time would have considered human beings to be uh, essentially irrelevant in the grand scheme of the cosmos. They would have seen humans as created to be slaves of the God. Uh, For instance, in a famous flood story, the reason that the gods decided to send a flood on the earth was because human beings were being too loud, (laughs) and so the gods wanted to silence them. I always like that. People are too noisy. They're keeping the gods up, so we're going to kill them all. Yeah, and then on the other side of that, the people who survive offer sacrifices, and it's like the gods realized, oh, we made a big mistake because we need the sacrifices of these people. It's it's really meant to be humorous, but in the midst of that context where other cultures considered human beings essentially just slaves of the gods, the Bible comes in and says, no, you are the image of God. You were created with an essential relationship with him, and and God created you uh, so that you could flourish. He created you so that you could be loved. He created you so that you could know him. You're the farthest things from slaves. You're sons and daughters of the high king of heaven. And so it uses the same concepts, but it comes in and in one sense critiques and deconstructs the wrongful thoughts of these other cultures, at, at which point uh, there is a beauty to the way that the Old Testament tells us about who God is, tells us about who we are, but to to really sharpen it, for it to be in its fullest relief, we have to understand what some of these other cultures believed and the contrasts that come in the biblical depiction of the very same things. Yeah, I like that you brought up the creation story, because that's where I think we can see these two elements, that the Old Testament is like the ancient Near East, but subverts it and critiques it. Mm -hmm. In Egypt, you can find inscriptions where Pharaoh is called the image of Ra, or he's made in the image of God, right? That's definitely a phrase we see in the Genesis story. But here's where it gets interesting. When an ancient reader would read image of God, they go, okay, yeah, we're used to a creation story, or rather maybe certain people being made in that. But Genesis is expansive, It's not Mm -hmm. just the king. It's not just the queen. It's not just the elite, the powerful. It is 
people, full stop, Mm -hmm. male and female, he made them in the image of God. So it takes that idea of image, which that could be its own podcast or a point in another podcast, what image of God means. But it takes that, this thing that was usually in other cultures reserved for the elite and for the nobility, and now makes it the property of all humanity, and goes one step further, and then says people are also in the likeness of God. And later in Genesis, we see Seth is the likeness of Adam. It's a familial term. People not Mm -hmm. just are image bearers, but they are meant to be joined to God as his children. That is something unheard of in other ancient Near Eastern cultures. And so we see that understanding the culture helps us get into the story, and then the story takes us to a different place, because God's truth is something far different than these other cultures. Yeah. No, Brian, and one thing that you mentioned, and I just want to underline it and highlight it, you know, even even the treatment of women, especially in those yes. times, like— um, the, the fact, the fact that, and I don't think it's possible to, to overemphasize this, the fact that Genesis one, as soon as, as God says, let us make man in our image, he says, let us make humanity in our image. And it says male and female, he created them. It, that could not be more subversive to the beliefs of the other cultures in the ancient Near Eastern world. God says up front on page one, emphatically, male and female are both made in the image of God. Um, and, and even in light of the rest of the unfolding of the Old Testament, that is meant to be, in one sense, a corrective to, uh, to how fallen people tend to view, especially women in that culture. Um, so it's important that we understand when the Bible says these things, when we can compare it can, and contrast it to other ancient Near Eastern cultures, it really helps us understand much more clearly what the Bible is trying to say and what the authors are trying to do. Absolutely. And so maybe a helpful metaphor, and this is not something original to me, I have to get credit to Dr. John Walton. In one of his books, he uses this metaphor. He says, all right, when we want to understand how the Bible and specifically how the Old Testament fits into culture, I want you to imagine a river. When you look at a river, you can see it flowing, right? It flows a direction. It has clear boundaries. And so we can describe this river where it makes its twists and turns, where it starts and where it ends. However, when you look closer, you see that within this common river, there are innumerable eddies and currents, right? The water doesn't flow uniformly in a river, does it? It swirls, it twists, it goes over rapids, it goes fast, it goes slow. Similarly, when we think of the Old Testament and Israel culture in light of the ancient Near East, the ancient Near East is that river. So we can describe it broadly as hey, all these cultures, they generally talk about these things, they use these ideas, these metaphors. But when we focus on the Old Testament as a current within that river, sometimes it's going to flow with the river. Sometimes it's going to swirl against it. It's going to have its own unique strain. But to understand what that current is doing, you do have to understand the river. So I hope that's helpful to you all. I found that very helpful in my own mind as I was trying to think of how does the Old Testament relate to culture and how does kind of understanding culture help us as readers? Yeah, I, I do too, Brian. When it comes to, when it comes to what we're saying, we're not saying that the Old Testament is just like all these other texts. We of course believe it's inspired. We believe it's the revelation of God. 
But what we're saying is, you know, kind of similar to the New Testament, where there's a lot of other literature that gives us context to help us understand it. You know, uh, Josephus wrote this, and that helps us understand certain things about the New Testament, or many other works of literature. It, it situates it. It gives us a backdrop by which we can understand it. And I love that river metaphor. It's not saying that the Old Testament is just one among many pieces of literature any more than the New Testament is, but we're saying it flows in that stream so that the other currents help us to understand how is the Old Testament using the images in the same way? How is it using them differently? It's very, very important. And ultimately, the payoff is it helps us to better read the Old Testament, which is what we're after. Great, great analogy. I love it, Brian. So you brought up the New Testament there, Tim, and I, I want to use that as a segue to our next point. When we want to understand the world of the New Testament, and there are many great books on that, one of the advantages you have as a New Testament reader is, at most, the entire New Testament's written within the span of a couple decades, right? 40, 50, <laughs> yeah. maybe 60 years, maybe further out than that. But you have, a, as it were, a one-generation gap of history. Well, guess Mm -hmm. what? The ancient world didn't change a ton in that one generation. You might have a different emperor on the throne, but Rome is still the dominant power. Greek is still Mm -hmm. the language of trade. As we dig into that world, we only have to understand basically one world setting. That's Mm -hmm. not the same in the Old Testament, is it? We have, as you already said earlier, at least a thousand years, probably Mm -hmm. a good deal more than that in terms of history being recorded. You have Mm -hmm. multiple world empires. You have the Egyptians. You have the Assyrians. You have the Babylonians. You have the Persians. In between that, you've got Hittite influence. You've got Sumerian influence. We have all these different elements that come in and make the Old Testament something a bit more difficult to understand, because you might be able to understand (laughs) in one setting the world of the patriarchs, but that's a far different world than the world David inhabits. And that's a far different world than the world that Ezra inhabits. Mm -hmm. As you and I were thinking about this podcast, Tim, and trying to go, all right, how do we begin tackling this? It's on one hand too big of an issue to deal with in just one podcast, but despite the many differences that we can see in the history of the Old Testament, we do see some commonalities and some general principles of understanding the ancient world that we thought it might be valuable to highlight for you as listeners to kind of get you started in this process of understanding the world of the Old Testament. Yeah, we do. And uh, Brian, you helpfully, uh, you helpfully gave us some categories here, uh, and we're using some of these from a book called The World and the Word. Um, so you can look that up if you're uh, interested in learning a little bit more about that. We recommended this book actually back in episode three. So you can go back, listeners, to the notes from that podcast if you want to see the information for The Word and the World. Yeah, yeah, and great stuff, and it really helps us to see the world of the ancient Near East, see some of those assumptions that the biblical writers would have had that that maybe as modern Western readers, for those of us who are modern Western readers, wouldn't have, Uh, and here's one of them. Uh, In the ancient Near East, community was everything. So the ancient Near Eastern world promoted interdependence. It had a very communal structure, whereas today in in the modern West, we have a much more um, independent, a much more uh, individualistic mindset. Uh, and that that is so important to understand as we read the Old Testament, because their sense of of solidarity as a community, 
uh, it's what gave them value. It's what gave them purpose. The, The idea that an individual would have had his or her own destiny divorced or separated from the community uh, that would have been, uh, I had one professor, Brian, he would have said that would have been an, an ancient Near Eastern nightmare. You know, for <laughs> us, it's like the American dream. And, and for them, it would have been an ancient Near Eastern or Mediterranean na- nightmare. I love that idea. Uh, but the communal element of the Old Testament, and in one sense in the East in general, it's still true, but especially in the Old Testament time, your corporate identity was was your truest identity. Brian, you want to elaborate on that at all? Yeah, I think for our listeners, if you want to get a sense of this, go and look at just the Ten Commandments. So the first four deal with people's relationship with God, but look at the next six. They're all about interpersonal relationship issues. Don't lie. Don't covet, right? These are things you do in community. They aren't seeking to establish like an individual's rights, like the Bill of Rights, but rather here's how you are supposed to live in community because the assumption is you're going to be interdependent. You're going to need to rely upon one another, care for one another, look out for one another. So that is going to be kind of front and foremost. Building off that, we also have in the ancient world a concept of Mm -hmm. solidarity with the corporate body rather than the individual. Now, those are kind of fancy terms, but what we mean is when we look at guilt, when we look Mm -hmm. at how people are held accountable, in the ancient world, in the world of the Old Testament, people are corporately held account Mm -hmm. for their actions. So we see this in numerous places. Uh, Tim, Mm -hmm. as we were getting ready to set up, you mentioned to me Achan. We see this a couple times, actually, right in the journey stories in Joshua and in Numbers, the sins of a person— when it mm-hmm. happens, the punishment then comes out upon their family sometimes. And we we shy back because we in the Western world like to have private autonomy, right, or private solidarity. I want to be held accountable for just my actions, but not necessarily the actions of others. Mm-hmm. While we may object to the idea that communities can be held responsible mm-hmm. for the actions of the individual, I want to just put it out there. We do really love this idea, though, when it comes to Jesus, Because it's the same principle. Jesus is going to take upon himself sins not of his own. (laughs) Yeah. And we are going to be judged by his actions. We like that positive side of it, but realize this is the same principle in action. It's just going Mm -hmm. the other way. Sin also has the same sort of corporate application. When the individual sins, the community can be held accountable But likewise, when Christ is able to fulfill the law, fulfill the will of God, so that can also be corporately applied to all those who follow him. That is a great example, Brian. And and the Old Testament is really full of this idea. Uh, uh, Like I think of, uh, I believe it's in Ezra 8, I'd have to double check that, but where Ezra prays uh, and he... uh, Praise a prayer of repentance, and mm. he says this, we have sinned against you. He's talking about interracial marriage among the people living living there. He says, we have sinned against you just as our fathers have, mm. and what's so interesting is he hasn't sinned at all. Like He hasn't done anything wrong, but he is praying a prayer of repentance on behalf of those he ha- who have, and he is identifying himself with those sinners. 
and, and when we think about this idea, to me, Brian, it really even goes back to that rhetorical question that uh, yes, after, after yes. Cain killed Abel, he says, am I my brother's keeper? And the implied answer, and we talked about this, right, with the image of God, it's a familial term. It's not just that we have this re- relationship with God, but entailed with that is, if I am a son of God and you are a son of God, that means that we're both brothers, at which point we have a responsibility for one another. And uh, whether we recognize it or not, whether we accept it or not, uh, there is a solidarity between us. And I love what you said about the Ten Commandments. Uh, and, and you may not have known this. I'm, I'm reading uh, a book right now uh, by Carmen Imes uh, about Mount Sinai, and I believe she was quoting Daniel Block. He actually called uh, the Ten Commandments a bill of rights, but he said it's a bill of rights for your neighbor not a bill of rights for you. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, because those six commandments are meant to basically ensure the rights of your neighbor so that as we live in community with one another, uh, we don't infringe upon each other in those ways. In other words, we live as brothers and we respect the position uh, that God has given us, the relationship that we've entered into, at which point, again, uh, that, that corporate solidarity, that communal element, uh, to me, it, it it helps us to understand in reading the Old Testament, but I love this, Brian, too. It also helps us to critique whether or not the individualism we prize in the West is actually the best way to live. Um, it, it's almost mm-hmm. like it's almost like the old, you know, if you want to know what water is, don't ask a fish. You know, we assume individualism and autonomy is the the true path to freedom. Well, the Old Testament in a lot of ways comes and asks us to uh, really um, really critique that idea and say, is that really true? Do you really find true freedom in individualism? The Old Testament comes in and at least causes us to question that or to question exactly what it looks like, uh, which is part of the value of the Old Testament. It's part of what makes it uh, so important is that it critiques us in ways that even in the New Testament, it, it might not get at the core of the issues in exactly the same way or from the same angle. Yeah, and I think that's important to get that critique and get that other viewpoint of the world, because we sometimes just assume that the way we live is the way everyone lives and the way everyone views things. And when we see this ancient world and this ancient kind of perception of reality, it is quite different and kind of maybe pulls those blinders back on us. Mm -hmm. Another way the ancient Near Eastern world views things differently than us is that there's much more of an emphasis on seeing the whole rather than seeing the parts. So as products of the Enlightenment and rationalism, we like to break things down into widgets. Here are the basic building blocks. (laughs) We can piece them together and then understand, right, how this process or how the system works. We understand by knowing the parts. The ancient Near East doesn't deny that understanding parts maybe is important, but you definitely see much more of an emphasis on, let's not get into the details, but let's see the whole picture. Mm Mm-hmm. We're going to not place the emphasis on the trees. We are going to place the emphasis on the forest because we want to see how this then impacts us and the world. So this idea specifically is maybe getting at a little bit of like the creation account. Mm -hmm. We'll Mm -hmm. talk about this in some episode, I'm sure, Tim. No matter what you do with that text, it's very clear that text is not going into painstaking detail on here's how everything goes together. Mm-hmm. But that's the point. They're looking at the whole and looking at there are very clear theological truths being preached out of this mm-hmm. that you can take. And that by focusing on the parts, maybe we would miss those. So the ancient Near Eastern world definitely has this focus on the whole rather than the parts. 
It's going to, along with some of our previous ideas, really focus on familial identity rather than uh, personal autonomy or personal identity. And it's also going to have a push towards conformity rather than uniqueness. Walk us in on that a little bit, Tim. How How is conformity over uniqueness a prized asset in the ancient world? Yeah, uh, I mean, the idea, and this this comes back to, in one sense, even the idea of honor and shame uh, over and against like individual achievement. Uh, you think of the fact that your community is what gave you a sense of not just position or status, but it gave you a sense of meaning and, and identity, as we talked about. So uh, to buck against your community would have been to, in one sense, uh, render co- your community open to shaming. It, it would have been to, uh, to elevate yourself over and against everyone around you. Um, so there, there's a lot of this, uh, and you see it in the New Testament too, but it, it's, I think the rootedness is in the Old Testament. There's a whole lot of a, who do you think you are? You know, um, mm-hmm. it, even with David, for instance, okay, David is the youngest son. Uh, he's, he's the run of the litter, so to speak. When his brothers saw him, you know, when he came to the front lines to, to see Goliath and he heard the taunts, his brothers were essentially like, hey, know your place. Um, and, and ironically, God uses David uh, in this powerful way, but also uh, David really becomes someone who shows a new pattern. You know, I think of, uh, for instance, when the Ark of the Covenant goes in after David's the king, uh, he, he, in one sense, acts out of character and he doesn't conform, at which point his wife rebukes him, right? You've made a fool of yourself. But in another yeah, she way... she doesn't like the dancing. She doesn't like the dancing, but that same thing, David is essentially saying, it, it, isn't this how we all should react to the presence of God? In other words, uh, uh, the, even David's uniqueness, he is offering as another form of conformity to say, man, we should all be worshipers in this way. And, uh, and so I think of even going back to Exodus 19, that God made the nation as a whole to be a kingdom of priests. That the idea of individualism, it's not like people weren't individuals or didn't have their own personalities or their own contribution, but their contribution was seen to be uh, edifying or building up the whole. It wasn't to elevate themselves, it was to elevate the community, and ultimately the desire was to glorify God. So the Old Testament has this different worldview, this different context that we're hopefully through these these points, Tim, that you and I are, are talking about, hopefully we're giving our listeners kind of a, a entry point, uh, a way to latch on. Mm-hmm. One thing we definitely want to emphasize, we've already said it before, but we'll say it again. There is a need to study the text beyond just reading the biblical text. We talked earlier in a previous episode about Sunday school eyes and pulling that back. Well, here's how we go one more time to the next level. Mm-hmm. beginning to understand the world in which the Old Testament exists. It will take time and effort. But I, I think, at least from my perspective, Tim, what better thing can we do with our time than studying God's Word and knowing it at a deeper level? So I yes. hope our, our listeners come away from this talk being encouraged to study, to study with others. Uh, it's amazing how many study Bibles are out there. Each one will have maybe little bits of information that they can add. So take our previous idea of reading and community come together and let's let's put all this information together and see what we can do with it. Some listeners might be going, well, this is all good principles, but how do I put this into practice? Well, that's what we're going to be kind of doing next time, Tim, right? We're going to be trying to put some some meat on these uh, the bones that we've 
established for the skeleton of understanding the Old Testament. Yes. You know, we recognize that this is maybe abstract in one sense, so what we're going to do next time is to jump into some biblical passages, give some uh, kind of detailed examples of how this helps and how it works. Uh, but one thing just to, to press into this, I think, Brian, you know, when we think about the Old Testament, there are many empires that rise and fall. And in one sense, that makes it more difficult. But in another sense, it gives us a more panoramic view of the faithfulness of God, that we see his faithfulness as empires rise and fall and as men and women rise and fall. We see his faithfulness through it all in a way that's impossible. If all you had was a, a 20 or 30 or 50 or 60 year view, you couldn't see it. In the same way, we see God's movement in his work among various cultures over time. And this is, this is what I love about the Bible, is that whether you're uh, declaring the word of God to, say, like an aboriginal tribe or a, a, a tribe of people who have never come into contact to what we call civilization, you can share the stories in the Bible, and because of the cultural uh, malayu of the Old Testament, they will have a point of contact. There is no there is no culture on earth that cannot read the Old Testament and say, I can understand that to some degree. There might be some minor differences, but it, it becomes intelligible. It, it becomes, in one sense, shareable because uh, of the cultures in the context that we see in the Old Testament. So I think both the history as well as the, the kind of cultural awareness and cultural understanding actually serves to make the Old Testament an incredible launching point in many cultures. And unfortunately for us, this, this might be a case of what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, or we could say cultural snobbery. You know, we in the West tend to assume that all people through all time think like us, or at least to some degree. Or even worse, we might think, well, if they don't, we're right and they're wrong. But the reality is, even today, there are more people alive on earth today whose cultures really more mirror the Old Testament than the New, or especially the modern Western culture. So I think it's so important for us to recognize uh, the Old Testament was given to us in that cultural setting, but God had a purpose in giving it to us that way. It makes the gospel message so much more easily shared, at which point that's why we should treasure it. And it's in, in other words, it's not just a point of study so that we can say, oh, did you know this about, you know, the the Pharaoh being called the image of God? Yeah, that's cool, you know, and it might help you in a trivia contest, but it, it's more than that. It's deeper than that. God did this on purpose so that we could have his word, his self-revelation, and it will help us share that word with others. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we're excited for the next episode. We hope you join us next week. But until then, stay old and stay cool. Stay cool.